Our scripture reading is going to come from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The word of the Lord. All right, so I already mentioned that uh, Jonathan, our normal pastor, is away. So if you're visiting, I do invite you to come back because it's not me every week, thankfully. And uh, also, you know, we, I mentioned that we got a couple of families attending a, a wedding and or getting married. We also have a couple of families on vacation. So I knew it was going to be a small crowd. And I said, let's take out the last row of chairs, which we did. Um, but it was joking, you know, maybe we should take out the first two rows because nobody sits in them anyway. And we can see they are completely empty. So I'm glad you guys have a little bit of a buffer um, in case I get dangerous. But I don't plan on getting dangerous. It'll be nice that uh, hopefully we have eternity to practice singing in heaven so we don't continue to make mistakes and sing off key. And I appreciate your grace with me. Before we get started, let me open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we just want to glorify you and honor you in what we do and what we say. In the reading of your word, in the preaching of your word, Lord, may you Touch our hearts in a special way tonight. May you remind us of something that we have forgotten. May you teach us something we didn't know. Or may you just convict us of something that we're not doing properly. Help us to become more and more like you through that great process of sanctification. That tomorrow we would be more like our Savior than we were today. And Lord, I just uh, thank you for this opportunity. Ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm actually going to start with an illustration, which is a little abnormal for me. I don't usually have a lot of illustrations, but people tell me I should have more because they're more interesting than my preaching. So I spent a lot of time in the last couple of weeks, after I had thought a lot about preaching on salvation and reading about it, I, I spent a lot of time in the last couple of weeks looking for stories or watching videos of people being saved. And I'm not talking being saved like they got pushed out of the way before they got hit by a bus, but like really being saved. Ephesians said that we were dead. You know, a lot of people talk about, oh, I was drowning and I reached out for God. But that's not what we see in Ephesians. In Ephesians, you're at the bottom of the pool, the bottom of the lake, the bottom of the ocean, whatever. You're already dead. There's nothing you can do. And God reached in and grabbed you. So I was looking for some stories like that. And I came across this woman who uh, is a writer and wrote her experience that happened just a few years ago. And I thought it applied pretty well and it was pretty poignant, so I'm going to read it for you. This is not my experience, but hers. 
I was having a lovely, fun meal with my 14-year-old son. We're laughing, having a good time, enjoying pizza, talking about what's on tap for the evening. I love the pizza, which I've noticed, a little disappointed, is burned on the crust. Two Amy's make such good crust, I think to myself, what a shame. I start to take a, bust, a bite into that burned section of crust. As I bite, I inhale. I have not actually even taken a bite of the crust. Not one piece of food is in my mouth. But as I inhale, I can feel it. I can't even remember, I can't even remember seeing it. A tiny, size of a clipped pinky fingernail. Piece of a paper-thin charcoal. Not even dough. It's what's left over from burning a piece of dough. It's literally a piece of charcoal crust. I inhale the sliver of black crust and immediately realize it's lodged in the back of my throat. I cannot imagine that it's blocking my passageway. I know my throat isn't that small, but I can't breathe through my mouth. So I go for water. The water does nothing to help, and I start to get confused. I don't understand how this tiny piece of charcoal is causing this problem. Seconds later, I grow terrified when I realize I cannot breathe through my nose either. In my mind, I am well past that point that we've all been through. When a piece of food is caught in our throat, grows down the wrong way, we're left with a cough, watery eyes, and the inability to speak coherently. But I cannot cough. I am more than worried about regaining my composure and speaking again. I am immediately worried about being able to breathe. I realize I need help now. I look at my son and make hand gestures that I can't, eat, that I can't breathe. And for a second, I'm happy I'm with the child who doesn't ever get embarrassed and has never been shy a day in his life because I know he'll help me. I know that he'll be the heroic catalyst that has the force of character to lead me to safety. I hear him say, are you okay, mom? And I shake my head, no. More hand gestures. I think I hear him say, my mother is choking, my mother needs help. But in his response to a call for help, I don't remember seeing anyone do anything. And I wonder how it's possible that I can't breathe, yet no one is heeding my son's call. He stands up, pushing his chair back, and yells this time. I look around. I cannot, I cannot breathe. I don't know how long I can last without an intake of oxygen. I make more hand gestures. I look at two ladies and a young boy next to me. I make hand gestures, but the women don't, women don't move. I hear one of them say, I think this woman needs help. I think she can't breathe. But she doesn't make this statement with any declarative force. It's more like a comment to her dinner mate in order to spark interest. The women know, but they do nothing. I look back at the women. I wonder questioningly, are these women who notice my situation not going to help me? I look around to see if anyone has heard the women's comment. The room echoes, and I wonder if her words were loud enough to be heard over the chatter of the other diners. I look around again, and I definitely know that if I don't get someone's attention immediately, it will be too late. So I walk away from my table, directly into the middle of the room, and I hear someone behind me. It's you. You've jumped up to help me. Someone has noticed me, I think. Someone has heard me, heard my son, seen me, understood the enormity of this, this confusing moment that shouldn't be happening. You grab me with great authority. I have no doubt that this is it, that this will work, that you will get me breathing again, that you will save me. I feel as if I'm a rag doll in your arms. You pump your arms into my stomach and I see my feet flail under me. Nothing happens. You do it again and I watch my feet dangle and I'm thinking, I'm like a raggedy Ann doll in this man's arms. You sink your arms into me once more and I cough and I breathe and I cough and I realize that I know I'm going to be okay, that you have made me okay. I feel a second person next to me. He brings me a chair. It's your father, I believe. I grab your arm and quite honestly, I don't want to let it go. This arm and the other one has wholly and completely saved my life. When no one else was willing, you saved me. I sit there coughing and not letting go of your arm. I don't know what to do or say. It's not that I'm embarrassed. I really don't get embarrassed that easily. It's not that it's awkward. It's the enormity of the fact that you, a man I don't even know, has just saved my life. Thank you is just too mundane for this situation. 
Someone hands me a glass of water. Your father, I believe. Perhaps it's your brother. I'm told to keep coughing, that it's a good sign, and that it's over. Half the diners seem to think that the dinner show is over, though they've hardly noticed there was a show at all. I hug you and I say a mundane thank you with a very hoarse voice, and I try not to cry. I've already made enough of a scene. This woman went on to describe a number of email exchanges she had with the person who saved her. And she ended her article with this. Thank you. You saved a life, my life. You saved my children from being motherless. I don't know what else to say other than shouting what I now consider our story from the proverbial rooftops. The introduction to the article, which I previously skipped, says this. How does one thank the person that saved their life? Since January 25th, 2013, I've been faced with that question, that dilemma, really. Other than buying he and his family dinner, how can I thank the man who saved my life? My conclusion? There really is no way. But what I can do is make his rescue efforts newsworthy. And in doing so, perhaps I can open up as well a form in which others can lay their thank you wreaths. You know, I saw a similarity here in this story. The only thing that she felt she could do to repay the person that, thanked, that saved her life was to make what he did newsworthy, was to tell other people about it, to tell their story. I want to pray again before we dive into the word. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your leadership and your guidance. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that indwells within us and helps us to understand what it is that we read, understand what it is that we see and deal with on a daily basis. Lord, I just pray as we open your word that it would be uh, rightly discussed, that it would be um, rightly heard. And I ask these things again in the name of our Son, your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Helps if I turn it on. All right. One other thing I did this week was look up the definition of salvation. And in the dictionary, I found this definition. Preservation or deliverance from harm, ruin, or loss. It's not a bad definition. But I thought, you know, we spent time in our, making our articles of faith in order to define things like this. So I wanted to look at what we as Cornerstone how we define salvation. We read it together earlier, and so I'll just read it now rather than reading it corporately. It says, We believe that Jesus Christ secured, secured forgiveness for sin and the gift of perfect righteousness through his obedient life, death on the cross, and resurrection from the dead. We believe that those who repent and put their faith and trust in Jesus, Christ alone as Lord and Savior, receive eternal life. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, they are delivered from condemnation and become a new creation. I want to take a look at this article of faith in three pieces before I dive into the sermon passage. The first section, I have highlighted there in red, Jesus Christ. See, we believe that Jesus Christ did the work. We don't believe that we did the work. We didn't save ourselves. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, an obedient life, not us. Jesus Christ suffered the punishment for our sin. Again, not us. And Jesus Christ rose himself, and we'll see later, us from the dead. 
It's not something we did for ourselves. One of the verses that we have footnoted on the article of faith is Romans 5.19, which says, For justice through the disobedience of one man. We talked about that last week. And Jonathan preached about sin and mankind, how Adam brought sin into the world. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. Righteous. Jonathan talked about that as well, Jesus being the second Adam, coming again to earth, but this time not screwing up, not giving in to the temptation of the evil one, but not, but not sinning, but leading a perfect and obedient life. The second part of the statement of faith says, We believe that those who repent and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as Lord and Savior receive eternal life. And there's a couple of things here I want to look at. Oops. Repent. So what does it mean to repent? It's not just saying, oh, I'm sorry for doing that. We've all said that in our lives for things that we maybe weren't so sorry about doing. Things that we're going to do again annoy the same person over and over, but repenting is doing our best to turn away from that, doing our best to live differently. So, you know, we believe that those who are truly sorry for their sins, who repent of their sins, who make an effort to turn away from their sins, and then put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I should go back and read John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that's important, and it's one of the things we talk a lot about as we head into communion, actually, which we didn't talk about this week. But, you know, we don't have to worry about being forgiven. It says if we repent that we will be forgiven in 1 John 1.9. But it's not just enough to repent. It says that we need to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. John 3.16 is the the verse we have footnoted in our Articles of Faith for that, and it says, we already read it, that God loved, so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And in that verse, it uses the word believe. We use the word believe all the time. But I want to make sure that we understand that in this verse, it's not saying, like, believe, like, like you believe in me that I exist, but, like, you believe that someone is trustworthy, that you believe that they're going to do what they say they're going to do, that you can put your hope in them, your faith in them, and your trust in them. And, you know, the verse we looked at just on the slide before, it said that he is faithful and just. So he is faithful. We can put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that's what it means in John 3.16 by believing in him, not just believing that he existed. James says that the demons do that. That's not good enough. It's not good enough to believe that Jesus existed, but to believe that he is your Savior, that you can put your faith and your trust in him. And then it talks about Christ alone. I should stay on that slide. Jesus Christ alone. I think that's really important, and I'll touch on that again later. But there's a reason we have that in our article of faith, because in a lot of cultures, in a lot of places, people have believed on Jesus Christ. They've trusted him to some degree with their life, but they still hold to some of their old beliefs. And it's not what Scripture teaches. It's not Jesus Christ and some of your old traditions. It's not Jesus Christ and some superstitions from your culture. It's not Jesus Christ and you doing everything you can to prepare for yourself. It's putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. 
You know, I travel to Haiti quite a bit, and you'll see down there a lot of Christians who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and practice voodoo, just in case. And that's not what it means to put your, your belief fully in Jesus Christ. You need to turn away from those old things. And then receive eternal life. The verse for that is Romans 6.23, which says, The wages of sin is, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why I went out of order on purpose and then confused myself. We already talked about Christ alone. So let's finish up what the statement of faith says so that we can get to the passage in Ephesians. The last part of it says, through the work of the Holy Spirit, which is called regeneration, they are delivered from condemnation, and become a new creation. The work of the Holy Spirit is really important here because I want to just emphasize again, we don't believe that salvation is something that we do. It's something that God does. It's Christ. It's the Holy Spirit working in our lives. It's not us. I really can't make that too clear, I don't think. And then delivered from condemnation, our footnote for that in the Articles of Faith is Romans 8.1. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the reason there's no condemnation is because in him we become a new creation. We get his righteousness. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. So I just wanted to walk us through our statement of faith. I think it's really important, you know, as we became autonomous this summer as a church, as we look to bring in our, our new, our first sets of members in the coming weeks and months, it's really important that as a congregation, as people who attend, we understand what we believe and why we believe it. And the passage I thought it would make sense to preach on isn't one that we footnoted at all in that article of faith, but it's a great passage in Ephesians that really just lays out all of what it means to be saved. Charlie read it for us, so I'm not going to read the whole thing in its entirety as we go. But, you know, I want to remind you that Ephesians is written by Paul. It's a letter to the church in Ephesus. And Paul is someone who really knows what it's like to be saved from something. Paul really had that that turning point in his life. If you know about Paul, you can read about it in Acts as he is, he meets face to face, so to speak, with the Lord Jesus Christ after his resurrection, the blinding light, and Paul is blinded. And for three days he's blind. And, you know, Jesus gives him instructions as to what he's to do. And he turns from his old ways immediately and begins uh, pursuing a new life in Christ. And so when he talks about these things in Ephesians. He knows what he's talking about. And he really wants the church in Ephesus, the new Christians, to understand what salvation is and that it's not their doing and that it's not something that should be taken lightly. So I just think it's a great, a great passage to kind of boil this all down. And so it starts by saying that we were dead. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. So as I said before, before Christ, before you met Christ, before you were saved, you weren't drowning, you weren't in need of help. It says you were dead, okay? 
You didn't reach out and grab onto him. You didn't seek him. He grabbed you from the, from the depths and he brought you up and he resurrected you. One of the things, as I said, I really liked about that opening illustration, I think she gave the sense of helplessness that she had. I think she kind of portrayed the fact that she needed help. She couldn't save herself. She couldn't figure out how to stop choking on this little thing. And I think that that was portrayed well. And, you know, the other thing I thought of when I was thinking about you were dead was the story of Lazarus. If you're familiar with it, it's in John chapter 11. You can, you can read it um, this week. But Jesus gets word that his friend Lazarus is sick. So Jesus waits two more days and then goes to see him. And he tells his disciples, all right, Lazarus has fallen asleep. It's time to go. And they say, well, if he's sick, sleeping will do good for him. And they're like, he's like, basically, no, you guys don't understand. He's dead. You know? And he's like, well, why, why would you let that happen? He basically tells them, so you can see my glory, so that you will believe. Okay? And I think it's the same for our salvation. You see, if Lazarus had just been healed, Jesus healed lots of people. They can easily say, well, people get better all the time. Or maybe Lazarus did something to make himself better. But people don't get up from the grave all the time. That doesn't happen. Right? So when, when Jesus comes into Bethany and people see him call Lazarus out of the tomb, it's pretty hard to dismiss that as, well, he just got better. You know, they can really see that it was nothing Lazarus did. It was all God. And it's the same thing with our salvation. God wants it to be all him. And he wants to get the credit and the glory, not us. The other thing in verses 1 through 3 that I think is important as I looked at it and studied it is this theme that we, whoops, theme that we followed. That we followed, it says, the ways of the world. We followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which is Satan, which Bernie preached on two weeks ago. That we had the spirit that is in work in those who are disobedient. We followed the desires and thoughts of our flesh. It said we gratified the cravings of our flesh. And really, when you look at this language, and I'm not a Greek scholar, so I'm not taking credit for this, but I spent time researching it, and they say it really gives the sense of this picture I'm showing you, which is people before Christ, people without Christ, you before you met Christ, you sitting here now if you don't know him, you're following these things because you really can't help yourself. You know, how do we move a bull along a field? They put a ring through his nose and they tie a rope to it. And pretty much wherever the person in charge of that bull pulls, that bull will reluctantly go. Sometimes it wants to, sometimes it doesn't, but it goes because it's going to hurt when that ring gets pulled out of its mouth, out of its nose, rather. You can pull a 2,000-pound bull around a field by a pretty small piece of rope and a pretty small ring. And that's the image that it gives, that, that Satan, that our own fleshly desires, that the world is leading us around by the nose. And we, we, can't even, we can't even stop if we want to. That's what it means to be dead in your sins. We're not making our own decisions. We're a mess. And later I'll expound on why that's important. So I want to just summarize, I think, what the pre-Christian state is like. And at the end of that sentence, it says, we were, by nature, deserving of wrath. I want to highlight that. 
So the pre-Christian state, the pre-Christian state has three things I see in there. Number one, you're dead in your transgressions and sin. Number two, you're bound by your flesh or sin nature. And you're following the evil one with no real choice. And number three, you're deserving of wrath. So keep those things kind of in mind. We'll revisit those later. But I want to continue on in the passage because the news gets better. Ephesians continues in chapter 2 and 4 through 7. And the important thing, as in most stories in the New Testament, where somebody's talking about all of the bad things, there's a statement that comes in that says, But God, and this one's no different, it says, But God made us alive. So, really just reinforcing again, I know it's like beating a drum. It wasn't us, it's God. He came and He made us alive. Don't miss that fact again that we didn't do it. Paul says, But God, God made us alive. God raised us up with Christ and seated us at the heavenly realms. And I think that we probably want to ask ourselves at some point, why would he do that? It's probably a good question to ask, and I'm going to answer that in a minute. But let's continue in Ephesians, looking at the last three verses, 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Let's highlight that one more time as Paul did. He took it out and made it a, made it a statement that even sets apart from the, from the sentence structure there. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. I think Paul wanted the Ephesians not to miss that point. So we're going to say it again. It is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. There's nothing that we did, we deserve wrath. But God, in his great love, made us alive, raised us up with Christ, and seated us with him at the heavenly realms. So, now, the answer to the question, why? Why did God do this? Well, if we look in the passage, in 4 through 10, we see these answers. He did this, number one, it says, because of his great love for us. It says, but God, because of his great love for us. So I think that's a pretty clear answer. God loves us. That's why he did it. He wanted to be in relationship with us. He wanted to save us. It says because of his mercy and grace. Okay, so God's love is the reason we're saved. God's mercy, God's grace. Why else? That he might show us the incomparable riches expressed in his kindness. God wants to lavish on us his riches. You know, we see this throughout Scripture. We don't have time to go into it in when we see God as Father. I mean, we talked about that several weeks ago. It's a theme that we've had in different sermon series. God loves us. He's adopted us as his children. And as his sons and daughters, he wants to lavish on us the riches that he has as the ruler of the universe. Number four, for his glory. The same reason that he told the disciples, and he told Mary and Martha that he let Lazarus die and then raised him from the dead. He said, didn't I tell you if you stayed with me, you'd see my glory? You'd see God's glory? That's why he did it. And then finally, for us to do good works. It says at the end of the passage that we are now God's handiwork, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do. 
which reminds me all the way back to one of our early sermon series when we talked about Genesis. And I think um, we certainly talked about the fact that through the Abrahamic covenant, we are called to bless the world. God said that he was going to bless the whole world through Abraham's descendants. Bernie talked about it at communion, that the new covenant is that all of us as Christians become the new Israel, the new church. We are the descendants of Abraham. Paul says we're grafted in through our faith. And so one of the reasons that God does all of this is so that we can share those blessings with other people and we can spread his love. Now, there are lots and lots of things that we can debate when it comes to salvation. There are Orthodox Christians all around the world that will argue about things that I think it's okay to argue about. I think it's okay to argue about limited versus unlimited atonement. If you don't know what that is, that's really the discussion as to whether or not Jesus died for the sins of the whole world or whether he just died for the sins of those that will end up being saved. We can argue, you know, theologically about predestination and free will and how that all works together. You know, some people are all the way on one side. Some people are all the way on the other side. A lot of people are somewhere in the middle where we think, you know what, we're certainly called to be accountable for our actions, so there must be some free will, but yet we see throughout Scripture that God is sovereign and he does everything. Maybe we're just not smart enough to understand it. I think we can have those discussions, and there's other discussions that we can have about salvation. Um, There's things called the order of salvation. I don't know if people are familiar with that, but people spend all kinds of time putting 10, 12, 13 things in order. How do they, what order do they happen in? You know, does faith come before, before you know, regeneration or is regeneration and then faith? How does it all work? We can argue about that, and I think it's all well and good, but I think there's a few things that we can't argue about and be within the bounds of orthodoxy. And when we put together our statement of faith, we tried really to focus on those key things um, and not focus on the things that will cause us to argue and divide, but focus on the things that come right out of Scripture. And so I think Ephesians boils these down, and I want to point them back out. I think biblical salvation, if we look at biblical salvation, it has a couple of things that can't be denied. Biblical salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I don't think we can err from those. Ephesians says that. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. Okay? And earlier in Ephesians, it made clear that it is all through Christ and that it is in Christ alone. And we looked at other passages about that. We don't want to stray from that. We want to stay true to what God says salvation is. It is not from ourselves. It is a gift of God. Okay? I think that, that's, I think I made that abundantly clear, but it doesn't matter what I said. I think Scripture makes that abundantly clear. Ephesians makes it clear, and there's lots of other passages. We were dead He made us alive. You can't make yourself alive. Don't take credit for what God has done. Okay, no one should be boasting in their salvation. Ephesians made that clear. That's one of the reasons God did it. So he gets the credit. And to God alone belongs the glory. I think all Christians who are following Scripture should be able to agree with these things. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not of ourselves. It is a gift from God. None of us should be boasting about it. We should be boasting about God because all the glory belongs to him. So, you know, I thought about 
thought about some applications to this. And I came up with a few. And I want to run through them, but I'm, I'm having this feeling that I forgot a slide earlier that I think was pretty critical. And maybe, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. Did I show a slide that showed the pre-Christ state modeled against the in-Christ state? No. Do I have that slide? I have it in my notes, so forget the slide. I'm just going to go through it. Pre-Christ, it said we were dead in our sins and transgressions, right? And in Christ, we are made alive. So those, that's the juxtaposition there. Um, in pre-Christ, it said that, remember, we were bound by our um, sin nature, by our flesh, and we we're following the evil one. But in Christ, it says we were created to do good works. Remember, the Bible says that apart from him, we can do nothing. That everything we do is in vain if we're not doing it in Christ. And then pre-Christ, deserving of wrath, and then this might be the coolest one, in Christ, seated with him in the heavenly realms. I mean, that is, the time's going to come, judgment's going to come, and he's not going to see us in our pre-Christ state deserving wrath. He's going to see Christ in his righteousness, and he's going to seat us with him in the heavenly realms. I apologize for skipping that, because that's hugely important. So, what is our response to the fact that we are saved, assuming you're saved. If you're here and you're not saved, well, there could be a different response, and that is, today could be the day of your salvation. I would invite you to come talk to me after the service, because I'd love to tell you more about that. But I think the most important thing we can do, if we've been saved, is to tell others about our Savior and about our salvation. If you remember the story that I started the sermon with, that's the only thing she figured she could do for the one who saved her, was to tell others about it, make it newsworthy, talk about it all the time so that even others would want to thank that person. So I think the problem is, is that a lot of us, if we've been Christians for a long time, or if we felt like we were pretty good before we were saved, but we don't really buy into the fact that we were dead in our transgressions and sins and we couldn't do anything apart from Christ, Maybe we don't feel like we've been saved from that much. So a good exercise this week is to compare the past to the present. I was saved when I was really young, about five years old. I didn't turn suddenly with a Damascus experience like Paul had from persecuting and killing Christians to following Christ. I didn't turn from a life of, of crime or, or drugs or you know, other things that people have these dramatic testimonies. But yet, if I look, if I look back 20 years, if I look back 25 years to the end of high school, to my first years of college, and I look now at, at the person I am, there's a big difference there. It's not one day versus yesterday and today, tough to see. Kind of like when you visit, uh, you know, a niece or a nephew or a grandchild, you haven't seen him in a couple of years, you're like, oh my goodness. But people who see him every day don't realize how much they've changed. So this week, go back and, and think about it. If you've been a Christian a long time, think about the person you were 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. What things did you struggle with then? Are you still struggling with them now? I bet there's a lot of them that you might not be because you're being made more and more like your Savior. 
So then tell somebody about that. That's pretty exciting. Say, you know, I used to be really angry. I hardly yell at anybody anymore. This is great. Look what God has done for me. Or, you know, I used to, um, you know, whatever. I don't want to make up examples. But, you know, if you go back and look at where you were, compare the past to the present, you might find something to be excited about and to tell somebody about. Think about the worst person that you can. Maybe you watched the news. Maybe someone did something to you a long time ago. Think about that person. And then realize that apart from God's grace, you're no different than that person. A lot of us like to think that we're not capable of the things we see on the news. But I think if you look in Scripture, God would tell you you are apart from Christ. So maybe that would help you be thankful. If you look at some of the horrific things that go around every day in our world that we can see on the news, that we can read in the paper, read on the internet. Don't read too much, you might get depressed. But think about the fact that that could be you had you not been saved, had you not maybe grown up in the family you grew up in and been introduced to the people you were introduced to. Start thinking about how it is that you ended up on that journey and how you're not that way. Because Scripture tells you that Apart from Christ, in our pre-Christ state, that's what we would be. Whatever you see in the worst person. And then I was thinking, we should have compassion on those around us that are living in the pre-Christ state. They don't know any better. They're being led around by the nose without even knowing it, fulfilling their own desires and the desires of the world. So do them a favor. Tell them about your Savior. Tell them about your salvation. Tell them why you're not led around by the nose and that they have an option as well. I think that, you know, those are some real things that we can do. And again, tell others about your Savior and your salvation. I think personal stories are really powerful. So I think that's great. If you can think back about where you were in the past and be able to share that with someone, what have you been saved from? How did it happen? Tell somebody that story this week. I mean, I, that's my challenge to you, is that you would tell one person about your Savior or about your salvation. I think too many of us go through a week without that happening. And then I had a couple of slides that we don't have time for. If you're not sure how to share the gospel with somebody, there's something called uh, the Romans Road, and I can share it with you. I had it laid out in the slides. We don't have time for it. So... I want to leave you with the thought that you were dead, you're now alive. Tell others about your salvation and your Savior. And I think I've gone a couple minutes over, but I want to close with another story. I spent so much time looking for stuff, and this one really struck me. And this was a blog post uh, this year by, I believe, a sophomore in college, a girl in Oklahoma. And I don't know if she just read Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10 before she wrote this or if she just has the Holy Spirit um, really guiding her as she wrote. But I thought this would be a great way to end. So just listen to these words, and it gives me a lot of hope in the future as well. If there's one thing I can be remembered for, I want it to be constantly talking about Jesus. Today there's an animosity that comes with talking about your faith and Jesus and anything you believe in for that matter, because everyone is supposed to be right, and you're supposed to do your very best not to offend anyone, which is really just meaning that you can't say anything at all. 
And I have to say, I simply won't be able to go along with that. I can't go along with that. You see, we all like to talk. We all like to talk about the things we're proud of and the things that bring us the most joy. Something good happened to you yesterday? You'll be talking about it for days to come until it grows old. And then you'll wait for something new to happen that you can share. I used to not understand how people could talk about Jesus all the time. If you simply knew who he was, wouldn't you eventually run out of things to say? Doesn't he eventually become like any other person, any new friend that you become familiar with? That's typically the case, but it's the complete opposite with Jesus. You see, ever since I came to know him, to really know him, I cannot remember a day that went by without me speaking his name or realizing his presence or calling out to him. And though others may find it repetitive or incessant, there's a simple explanation for why I will never stop talking about Jesus. I won't stop talking about him because Jesus gave me life. Jesus saved me from my flesh. Jesus came down and died for me and for you. And when we naturally reject and deny him daily, Jesus invites me into his blessings, into his divine nature, into his joy and peace and grace and mercy to be able to live every day with a purpose and a hope that is bigger and greater and more satisfying than anything this earth can come up with. We talk about things that bring us joy, right? Jesus brings me joy. We talk about things that are a huge help in our lives, right? Well, Jesus is my biggest help. We talk about things that um, have matured us and grown us, have transformed our lives, right? Well, Jesus has matured and grown and sanctified me. We talk about things that are constant, right? Right, Jesus. There's a lot of negativity towards people who talk about their Christian faith, but if they only knew, if they only knew how I would be dead to my sin without him, if they only knew how I would be entirely unsatisfied without him, searching in complete darkness for answers that can't be found where I'm looking, if they only knew how I would be living with no purpose without him, under a severe truth that went over, my life would be nothing and mean nothing. If they only knew how I would have such little joy, hope, or goodness within me. If they only knew how different I would be without him and how different I am because of him. But they don't know. And maybe that's the whole reason we need to keep talking. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we... are thankful for what you've done for us, for sending Jesus to live a perfect life, to die on the cross and to be raised from the dead so that we can be credited with that perfect life, so that we don't have to die, but we can live seated with you in the heavenly realms. But God, thank you isn't enough. And although a lot of us say thank you and we thank you for the blessings we see and for the food we have and for the different things around us. Lord, maybe some of us have lost the joy. Some of us have lost the enthusiasm. Maybe we haven't taken stock lately and noticed how different we would be without you and how different we are because of you. Lord, I pray that you would rekindle that joy, that you would help us to talk about our Savior, talk about our salvation in the days, in the weeks, in the months, in the years ahead. Lord, we ask for your help in this and for your guidance through your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.